My name's Pete Lowe. Welcome to Man Marking, and we're asking, where's the talking, lads? You only get into, out, out the game where you've into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it I could, and still do, for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. You yeah. regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Welcome to Man Market, the podcast that uses football as a vehicle to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. Today, we're talking to Pete Lowe. Yeah, my name's Pete Lowe. Um, I had about 25 years in professional football. <laughs> all in the area of um, uh, youth development, if you like. In other words, creating young players. Um, my last club was Manchester City. I was there for about 13 years, something like that. Went there in July of 2000. I think I left in, um, I think it was May of 2013. I've got to be honest, time flies. I can't honestly remember. Um, I've had a fantastic time. Uh, I've worked with some truly, truly outstanding people. Fantastic people, actually. And we were really lucky. We created um, an awful lot of players um, in an environment of, um, of real success, to be quite honest. So, But my job was was as a coach and as an educator of players, if you like, for one of a better way of saying it. As always, I'm joined by Danny Reid and Anthony Olsen. Um, how are we both today, lads? Superb. Too bloody perb. Excellent. And so you're running past me like a gazelle before at the local park. Um <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, a little bit of a run this morning, 10k run, like a gazelle. I'm not sure whether I'd get away with running away from the lions, but I was going to say, is it one of those uh, gazelles that's been maimed by? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it was good. A little, well, 10k run this morning, a bit stiff and sore now, but yeah, it was all right. Um, yeah, obviously, for those who can't see you, you're sporting a lovely Freddie Mercury-like moustache. You've done a bit of running this morning. Danny's also growing a little bit of facial hair. Um, <laughs> want to just let the let the viewers know what what it's an aid of? Uh, yeah, so it's an aid of um, our good mate uh, Danny the Brabs. We've mentioned on the podcast before. We we did it for him last year. Uh, basically, raising money for Wirral Food Bank. So obviously, it's a tough time of the year right now and, and it always is but even more so this year with with all the uh, effects of the pandemic and we're also raising money for for november as well because um you know the, the mental health charities for men and and you know health charities for men are, are, you know again taking a hit uh, this year with the pandemic effects and i think you know more so now than ever it's it's more it's more important that we 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 keep raising money and keep raising awareness for these these um these charities Absolutely, mate. Absolutely, and and Danny, the fans are eager to know. Uh, is there any update on your knee? Obviously, that you've, you've been grabbing a mustache, but uh, the running's yeah. after stock. Can we can we have an update for the fans? Yeah. Did you say the fans? Like uh, I might have done, but I was meant to say the fans. The fans. Sunday, Sunday Monday, happy days. Um, yeah. So I had I had my X-ray the uh, the other week. Got the results back uh, yesterday. Through the through the doctor, the classic, the classic route of getting results back, and um, there's some degenerative 
something or other with one knee and then the other knee, they think there might be some loose cartilage or something or other. So I've got to go to the uh, musculoskeletal department at the hospital and potentially get an MRI. So uh, I might, I might, might well be out for a little bit, little bit longer, but it remains to be seen. But she did say I can, can go running. So I'll probably go for a little run this afternoon. Probably not like a gazelle, maybe more like a hog. Um, Jonathan Hogg. Jonathan Hogg. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I'll get out there. I'll be pounding the pavement, so to speak. Lovely. Love that. Uh, and thanks for the update. Um, as always, we do a bit of an opening question. And I, I think, like most, uh, we'll be touching on Diego Maradona, who sadly died last week. A player of inspirational and eccentric talents. He made an entire generation fall in love with football, with the magic and the romance of football. Um, and we've asked a number of our guests which player they will pretend to be as a child, and Maradona has been a, a regular answer. So I want to know from you both, who would be the player that you pretended to be most as a child? It's probably going to be an obvious one, but it was it was always Wayne Rooney, always Wayne Rooney. When I was very young, it wouldn't have been because he's not that much older than us. Um, but when I was when I was about my ten or eleven. And um, might have even been younger than that. But remember when he came through the Everton youth team and there was these kind of rumours. And obviously, we live on the Whittle, so we're not far from from Everton. And these kind of whispers start. And it was time before sort of social media and things. So you kind of get information in a different way. And you were hearing whispers that there was some kid at, at Everton who was, who was brilliant, who was scoring these goals in the FA Youth Cup. And then I remember seeing that video do you remember that goal he scored against Tottenham at White Hart Lane in the Youth Cup where he hit the free kick, I think, off the wall and then he just absolutely blamos it in the top corner from about 40 yards. Just absolutely ridiculous goal. And you're like, who is this fella? Anyway, my dad comes home from work one, one evening and he says, do you want to go to Goodison Park? Do you want to go to Goodison Park tonight? And I was like, uh, yeah, okay, why? And he was like, well, they're playing in the FA Youth Cup final and they've got this lad playing for them who's supposed to be amazing. Um you can go if you want to, only like a fiver to get in. And I was like, all right, sound, yeah. Thinking it's a youth game. So having been to reserve matches at Tranmere when there's nobody here, expecting there to be nobody in the ground. I swear there was about 30,000 people in Goodison Park and everyone was there to watch Wayne Rooney. And he scored. I think Everton lost 4-1 in the end, which is a very Everton thing to do. Um, but Wayne Rooney scored a really good volley and I was just absolutely hooked from then. And then I remember when I was about 15... My dad said to me in the car on the way home, compared compared me to the main man, said, got a little bit of Rooney about you in your, in your style of play. And I was, I was away. I was away. And uh, yeah, so it would always be Rooney. It'd always be if I was playing footy um, down the uh, the alleyway between the two houses by mine, just letting it bounce and Rooney! Just smashing it into an empty goal um, and wheeling away. So yeah, Rooney for me. <laughs> Bob's like Ant is Bradley Orr. Yeah, Bradley Orr. <laughs> uh, Thierry Henry was mine. You always want to be the best player, don't you? And I think he was the best player for for a number of years. He was he was just phenomenal. Some of the stuff that he did. I think there was a goal against Charlton where he backheeled it through someone someone's legs and into the goal. And you're just like, oh, that's just it's like a cheat code, that isn't it? I mean, some of the stuff that he. I mean, obviously everyone go back to you know the handball and stuff like that. And it's quite funny that. You know, I've picked him, to be honest. Um, with with obviously Maradona passing away this week, uh, he, he was just he was phenomenal. I, I think there's there's a the performance in the San Siro and that Arsenal side at the time as well 
on their day were capable of just destroying some of the best teams in the world. The performance of the San Siro against Inter Milan, it was 5-1 in the end, and they made a, a very, very good team look distinctly average, and Omri was part of that. And I always remember, the I think it was the unbeaten season, um, I think he played Leeds, and I think every goal he scored, he fell over, and he still made it look just unbelievable. And he had them shiny blue uh, vapor, Nike vapors, I think they were, and he was just, he was just class. Just, just, yeah, he was the one I wanted to be. And never, ever. I mean, if, if anyone's seen me play football, I, I'm nothing like him. I'm put yourself more, down. Come I'm on. Probably more. I'm probably more like Bradley or which I, I'll take. I'm sort of moving on then to, to Pete Lowe's interview. Um, Pete Lowe's a, a man who's been involved in football for a number of years, but might not be somebody everybody has heard of before. So do you want to give the, the listeners a bit of a background down to how the, the interview came about and, and who Pete Lowe is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of our one of our listeners reached out and uh, slid into the DMs and recommended Pete as somebody that we should potentially speak to about doing an interview. Um, so... I can't remember how we went. We found an email address or, you know, some kind of contact for him. Dropped him an email. Pete came back and I had a, a chat with him on the phone for about 10 minutes. Um, I had to say, I had to say at one point, Pete, I, I really would love to talk, but we'll end up all here all day, mate, and, I, and I've got to do some work. It was like the middle of the day on a Tuesday. Um, but yeah, no, he's he, he worked at Man City for a long time, sort of from the, uh, the turn of the millennium. And he's had a, a sort of long history working in in youth football, and and he's he's subsequently from that been working in welfare and well being for for players, uh, particularly in a in a youth setting. So we kind of thought he'd be spot on for some of the themes that we've touched on, particularly with ex players and also players who've maybe dropped out of the game at an early age due to welfare, well being type of issues. Yeah, spot on. And what is that theme for the listeners, please, Ant? Okay, so uh, this week's theme is loving the game for what it is rather than what it can give you. And I think that's a, it's kind of an important message and it's a message that Pete kind of you know echoes throughout the interview as well when you're obviously going to listen to it in a minute. It's, you know, a, a lot of the times with, with you footballers, they are, you know, expectant of these big riches and, and, and glamorous lifestyles and I think it can have an adverse effect. I think we've seen it. Um, you know, we've seen it, you know, even when we talk about Maradona there, you know, his, his extracurriculars, if you'd rather call them that, where um, it kind of took over at times and certainly ruined parts of his career. Uh, so it, it's about what, you know, the game gives you and, and about remembering that all the way through. And I think that the, the players that we've spoken to have often said oh it goes really quick it goes really quick I wish I had my time again so it's a it's a it's a really important theme and it's a really important message to to keep remembering and and it's one that can can give you a bit of a wholesomeness I think if you if you do that and look back at it and go I, I loved that game of football I, I really loved playing and I think yeah I think it's a it's a great theme and it's a great interview as well so what we're going to do now, we'll play the main body of the interview and um, you're listening to Man Marking and we'll have a bit of a discussion afterwards. See you soon. In a, in a game which uh, focuses so much on physical ability and physical wellness, do you think we put enough emphasis on mental well-being? 
No, I don't know quite the contrary. I've been asked this question a million times, to be quite honest with you. I, I wish I had a pound for every time somebody had asked it me. I think I'd be pretty well off now, if I'm honest. Um, <laughs> you know, you can, I can wrap the answer up in a Christmas parcel. But the bottom line is, once you answer that, undo that parcel, you'll find the same answer. And the answer is, no, I don't believe we do. I believe football is a very reactive game. It's not a proactive game. It doesn't proact at all. It waits for problems to occur. Then it says it's going to deal with them. And then it tells everybody that it's actually dealing with them when it really isn't, to be quite honest with you. But, and if you look back over the last two or three years, in fact, go back to uh, the last World Cup finals, just before England went there, and Danny Rose came out and said, you know, the issues that he'd actually had. And then, if you like, um, uh, God bless his soul, um, Young Fashnu, who... Um, um, sadly committed suicide all those years ago now that and it was on TV only last week that reminds us about that okay that came out with if you like because he he was for the one of a better way of saying it one of the, the first known gay footballers if you like but he went through all those pressures that he went through um, and then we have a prolifery of players um, that come out and say that they've had their own issues perhaps even people in the game, a staff had their own issues. Um, and they're not things that easily go away, you know, Ryan. They're just not. And in some ways, you know, people, I've spoken to loads of people about this and people are, um, are actually in the business, if you like, this business of um, provision of mental health support. And I don't believe that's a great way of just put that, but I think you know what I'm trying to say. Um, and I've had, you know, sort of official conversations with them and unofficial conversations with them. And e even those people have agreed with me that it's a reactive business. We react to problems. We don't prevent them from happening. Now, you could say, well, hold on a minute. It's a really emotional game. Yes, of course it is. But because it's an emotional game, that should be a bigger reason for actually being proactive in the first place. Um, we actually had Miguel Delaney on the show, who was is the chief football writer for The Independent, and he did the big article on, or one of them on the Danny Rose um, interview. And we felt like that was a real watershed moment because often in sport, these stories come from retired players or retired coaches, and it felt refreshing that it came from a current player playing at a high level. Um, what, what were your thoughts on that when that first came out? That's a great question, you know, that uh, that really is, because at the time that actually came out, I got a phone call from um, BBC. Um, I can't remember which one of the uh, channels it was now. You have, please excuse me, because it is going back to the, um, the the last World Cup finals just before England went. And they asked me to, um, to go on the show in the afternoon, and I said, yes, I would do. Um, and they asked me more or less the same thing, if you like, or a question of that ilk, shall we say. My view was, um, first and foremost, um, was good on you, Danny. Not a great phrase, but I think, again, once again, I think you know what I mean by that. Good on you, Danny. Good on your bravery. Um, because you're not just doing yourself a service, you're doing everybody else in the business a service. You're doing everybody else in professional sport a service. And you're doing everybody else in life a service. And everybody talks about this issue of men being frightened of, um, of, of, of sort of opening up and coming out, so to speak, with their views on this type of stuff, you know, because of the, the, um, the stigma um, associated with it, if you like. That's so, you know, my view to that is equally is that he's done blokes a service as well. 
you know, and um, it must have taken an awful lot, an awful lot of searching as well for him to speak as honestly and candidly as he did, you know, because he, he criticised the game to some degree in saying what he said. So my view was that you used the word refreshing. It's, the word is right, by the way, but it's a gross understatement as well. Um, I think what he did was, was fantastic for football. And if it leads to um, other people who have the same issues inside of the game, for whatever reason that might be, and them doing what he did, then goodness me, that can only be good, can't it? I mean, we never really know when somebody has an issue to the depth of what that issue is unless they actually speak about it. We might surmise it because we might know who they are. You know, we might know, are you, are you talk about a phrase, you know, understanding your changing room, understanding the people in there, because they all share a common bond, but they are all different in some way. You know, they've all got their own family's idiosyncrasies or whatever that might be. They've got their own family's pressures. And I've, and I say to people that don't expect somebody different to walk in from his home environment in through the doors of your work because that's just wrong. And don't expect him to leave his problems at home because why on earth should he be able to do that? I can't do that. I think I'm a pretty rational person. I think I've met more rational people than me if it comes to that. But um, I, I think that um, it's almost impossible to ask a guy to come in from his, his private life where he may have issues there, if you like, and to bring a different person into work. That just doesn't happen. Not in my book, anyway. A long and successful time at Manchester City. Yeah. How, how would you define how you created the culture there with, with the young lads? Um, there's so much to say in that. <laughs> there really is. Um, I'm going to try and sort of condense it for you, if you like. I went there in July of 2000. Um, I went down to meet my old boss. I'd worked at a previous club with Jim Castle, who was then the academy manager. So the first thing I'm going to say is this, is that for any environment to be successful, it's got to have great leadership. That's the first thing. And he's as good a leader as I've ever worked with. And actually, no, I'm going to put it another way. He's the best, plain and simple. Um, he, he, he really is the tops of, of, of any leader I've ever worked with empathetic, full of energy, um, engaged with his people, asked for people's opinions, didn't canvas for them, wanted them, but he also wanted challenges. He wanted people to challenge. He wanted people to stand up and say, no, 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 that's not how we do it. This is the way we should be doing it. But then the skill of leadership comes in where we all buy an agreement for the want of a better way of putting it and agree to do a way, to do a thing a certain way when perhaps some other people don't want to do it that way. That's a team. So you know you've got a team when uh, you, somebody is the glue that makes the team stick together, and boy, was he the glue. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this. It's like getting players to play in a team. You don't change any players in a team unless you can bring a better player into changing with. What's the point in just changing players? There's just no point at all. So if you're going to buy a player, make sure he's better than the one that you've already got. Otherwise, stick with the one that you've got. So what goes with that is getting the best players or the best staff that there is available and then plotting your way to success. You know, having a plan. You've got to have a plan. You can't just work on a daily basis 
and go, let's try and win this game tomorrow. You've got to have a way of winning the game. So, you know, getting the best staff, it was about getting the best coaches we could do. Um, getting the best um, uh, welfare people we could get, the best educationalists we could get, the best admin people we could get. Um, other clubs could arguably turn around and say, um, well, we have better staff than you. But I'm going to turn around and say to you, we never spoke about other clubs. And we never bad-mouthed other clubs under any circumstances. What they did was their business because we didn't know what they did. So why speak about people that you don't know? You know, people would turn, you know, in the past, Manchester City in the past, be um, when I say in the past, going back to the 90s, the 80s or whatever that might be, I heard loads of radio interviews in the past where people from the club would talk about Man United on the other side of the city, we're going to do this and we're going to catch them and this, that and the other. The best thing you could ever done where Man United were concerned was try and use their magnificent standards that they created and try to emulate your own through what they'd done. Use it as inspiration, not as a form of jaundiced jealousy, for the want of a better way of putting it. You know, and, and we were we were hugely, um, um, how could I put it, um, praiseworthy of what they'd achieved on the other side of the city. And we knew we had to change it at Manchester City. And that was done through Jim and, and, and the staff. And he put a, a plan in place. We started to win games. We started to get better players. We started to win tournaments abroad. We started to win tournaments at home. You know, and we, we won six national under-18s uh, titles and a youth cup and went to another youth cup final, won an under-15s World Club Championship. Had, um, which now I think the total of international players is over 30, I think. Um, something like 39 Premier League players and 74 professional debutants in all in, in the professional football leagues, including the Premier League in a spell of 10 years, which is pretty damn impressive to say the least. And um, a transfer kitty of something between 60 and 70 million quid. You know, um, having spent very, very little for the want of a better way of putting it. But here's the other side of it, Ryan, and, and the, I, I, I don't know whether people speak about this or not. My colleagues, my ex-colleagues, who are still my friends, by the way, speak about this. Because I hope this comes across in what I'm saying. I believe I was privileged to work at a time at that football club. I also believe I was privileged to work with those people. Because they taught me how to do my job, and I hope in some small way that I gave them a, an ability to do a part of their job as well. That's what being a team is all about. But at the time at Manchester City, it hadn't had any success for years in, in player creation, if you like. And at first team level, it hadn't won a trophy for 40 odd years. And, you know, people talked about it as being a big football club. Well, let's use a phrase, shall we, and be pleasant and say perhaps it was a sleeping giant. But yeah. the, simple, the simple reality is, actually, if you looked, up, looked upon, upon it when we went there, we couldn't fail. Because, you know, there may be spectators have said, well, how will these guys turn it round? Everybody, nobody else has turned it round before. So if you did fail, they could equally have said, well, there may have been an, uh, may have been an energy to say, well, I guess they're just another bunch that didn't succeed. So. Actually, if you think about it, how could you how could you not fail? How could you not succeed? Rather, <laughs> it was a win-win. 
you, you know, and, and that's that's the simple truth at the end of the day. And Sean Wright came through. He was the first one. And, um, and, and you know, and boy, what, um, what a fantastic role model to bring through was the first one. You know, fantastic young man and a fantastic role model. And I think a brilliant role model for the, get, the professional game as well. If you're then competing for players further down the line at who may be at 14, 15 years of age, and they can see that pick, that clear pathway, Sean Mike Phillips, Joey Barton, whoever it may be that's gone before them, that's a huge incentive to be picking Man City to join if, you, if you're competing with Liverpool and United and all the other big clubs in the North West. Uh, yeah, there's no question about that. You, you, you've literally took the recruitment words right out of my mouth. I mean, why do, there was nothing, there was no need for us to sell anything like, you know, anything else, if you like. Come and have a look at this. Come and have a look at that. There's no need to do anything of that. I mean, clearly we did do. What I mean by that was that we bring products in, potential players coming in and try to make them feel at home with what they've got. But one of the great strengths of our environment was the following was that in a 10-year spell, only two members of staff left the academy. Get your head around that. Two members, that was all. One of them went to an internal promotion and the other one uh, left to, to, to form his own businesses. So actually, the, the, the team of staff rose from being, I think it was six, to 33 in a 10-year spell. So, And in that time, we only lost two members of staff. And I remember a member of staff coming in from the PFA and saying that one of the great strengths of this environment that they were, the players were in was the consistency and continuity of the people that they were working with. And so what you had were established methods um, created by innovative mindsets, intelligent mindsets, challenging mindsets, argumentative mindsets, actually, to be quite honest with you but who were all in their own right leaders. They weren't just followers. And great environments create leaders. They don't just create followers. You know, and you saw that at Man United through all those years, and people could say, well, they just had great leaders on the pitch. Sorry, they got great footballers on the pitch. But no, they also had great leaders on the pitch. And they had great leaders off the pitch, because that's what it takes. You know, and that's all about this planning process, if you like creeping to get better every single time. You know, using the words of Sir Dave Brailsford from um, Exeter British Cycling, he, he, you know, talked about this concept of marginal gains. Find 1%. Find 1% every week. If you can find 1% every week, not just on the field, but off the field, in your staff mindsets, in your players' mindsets, what you eat before games, how you travel to games, how you ask players to sleep, Little things like that on, on, on coaches, you know, take a pillow with you because your neck is comfortable in an uncomfortable seat. They're just little things, but they're things that make the biggest of differences. And when you act up, add up all those collective marginal gains, boy, you've got baskets full of the stuff. You know, when you look back over the years, there's just baskets of the stuff. And they're just little bits and bobs that make the difference. Do you think the players who got an opportunity back then would get one now? Um, <clears throat> that's kind of like a question that you get asked, like, um, would yesterday's players be as good in today's game? You know, like your Graham Sunessis of the world, um, your Alan Hansons of the world, and your Kenny Dalgleishes and players like that. Uh, players with huge talent 
always show themselves if their mindset is good enough and their personality and character is good enough. And I think that there are some players, um, I look at Michael Johnson, who was incredibly talented, Stephen Ireland, who was incredibly talented, Sean Wright Phillips, who had the heart of a lion. You couldn't put him down. He had the heart of a lion. Um, you know, five foot four and about seven foot four in, in character stature, for the want of a better way of saying it. You know, and players of that ilk, um, who's to say that they wouldn't? There is so much talk in, in about today's game, you know, about... And I, by the way, I do think the standard has gone through the sky. I think the standard's gone through the sky. I think it's an incredible product. I think the Premier League now is an incredible product, and you can see why people want to watch it. It's exciting. It keeps you on the edge of your seat almost every single game. But that's not to say that players that played uh, 10 and 15 years ago wouldn't be good enough to play now. If they were training with players of that ilk now, if you like, you know, whole squads of players of the, of the standard that there is now, who's to say they wouldn't be that good? It, I feel like there could be a bit more trust in this country to put a young lad in, uh, even when you're doing well. Yeah, I think there's a lot. There's a lot behind the words that you've just um, you've just said that spoken there. To be quite honest, Ryan, but uh, managers will always be under pressure because their their pressure is to get a result. You see, my job and the staff that I worked with, uh, the team of people that I was a, a team member of, and I was just a small part in the cog, or a small cog in in, in the big parts, if you like. Um, our job was a job of longevity. Our job was that often, you know, Phil Foden, for example, was with us in our academy. Um, and he came through that one into the, into the if you like, the now academy. Um, you've got to take young players like that and give them little bits every single week and hope that they pick more bits up than you give them every single month. And then you've got to trust to things like nature. They've got to, you know, they've got to grow. They've got to develop some pace, if you like. That is that takes place of a its natural place in the modern game, which is so much quicker now than it ever was. You know, it's frighteningly, frighteningly quick. And if you see them in training and the pace of which they move the football around and the pace at which they glide over the grass, because they do, then you, you know you get a real um, a real indication of the physicality of this game. Um, so. Yes, you're right in what you're saying. It takes brave people to put players in there. But then at the end of the day, and excuse me speaking about Man U, and I'm not doing it because I'm a fan, I'm doing it because I'm an admirer of the way in which they did it, if you like. It was always in their DNA to create young players. Busby did that. And you're right, by the way, in what you're saying. An awful lot of Man United's younger players, if you like, were, were created because of difficulties that the, the, the club actually um, actually went through because it lost great players as well and young players like Duncan Edwards and players like that. Um, but their history is littered with creating their own players and uh, their manager, Mr Ferguson, would put players on the bench and then bring them off the bench and give them five minutes, 10 minutes or 15 or 20 or whatever it might be. Then they'd get full games, they'd come out again, go back on the bench and that's part and parcel of their education. And at some stage, you've got to trust. You've got to trust. You know, but if, if there's one thing that might happen now, 
and I'm not sure it will, but I'm, I'm, so I'm not making any prophecy, I can tell you now. I'm offering an opinion, is that where we are now because of what's happening in life now, it might change the value of the checkbook. Does that make any sense? It, it does, and I think it would potentially be a really positive outcome uh, from all of this. For, for this, for, for certainly for the national game in this country, yes. You know, my view to that is yes. I mean, and, and if, if that is one thing that comes out of this, then, then I would love to see in the next three to four or five years or whatever it might be, young players at every single Premier League club in this country busting through the seams and pushing players out the team and going, I'm having your spot. Because ultimately, that's what they've got to do. You know, they've got to stand up there and show the character and go, I'm having that shirt and you're not having it back. So, you know, they've got to put their face in the face of the, of the manager and his staff and say, here I am, have a look at me, have a look at me. don't forget my face, because it ain't going away. If you wait too long for that opportunity, I think your formative years, you're going to learn a hell of a lot more on the football pitch, playing with, with adults, and you'll have that natural raw ability and enthusiasm, but I don't think anything replicates <clears throat> playing the, in first-team games, rather than maybe a little bit more sanitised youth football. I know what you're saying, Ryan, and, 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 and I think you're right, by the way. I do genuinely think you're right. And there comes a stage, in my opinion, where a player who, if you like, is almost a nearly player, sorry, is almost a player and becomes what I call a nearly player. Often it's, it, often it's because there is this um, almost... Um, depleted mindset about having to go out on loan all the time, you know, to different clubs, people saying, sending you out on loan because we think it's going to be good for you when it's the sixth and seventh loan or whatever. At some stage, they've got to be given an opportunity. But equally, on the other side of that coin, they've got to also demonstrate and show and say to the management team and the manager, I'm here, come and pick me. And that's done, in my opinion, in one of two ways. One, showing the ability to affect and influence a game when you play, at that level, by the way. And secondly, to have the character to influence the game at that level. And then there's a third bit that goes with that, of course. That is consistency. So, you know, and that consistency is all about the winning mindset. You know, being a winner in your mind. Accepting the responsibility that is yours, by the way, for your career. Don't, act, don't you know, don't rely on other people for, for giving you the things in there in your career. It's yours. And that's one thing I'd say to all young players. Don't sit there and wait for everybody else to give it you. You've got to get off your backside, you know, and burn a few sparks under your shoes, by the way, and show people what you're capable of doing. And that comes out in your character. And it, and it will either show as strength of character or, with all due respect, it will show that there's a lack of character. You know, I can't put any other way, really. And I'm sorry if that sounds harsh, but um, that's just the way it is. A lot of players we've seen on the podcast have talked about not enjoying their moments of looking back and thinking, I didn't take it in. I didn't stop and grasp what I had. Um, and I think that's quite important lesson that any former player can give a young, a young man trying to find his way in the game, which is live every moment of it and not let it sort of bypass you. Yeah, I think that's, that's a, 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 again, a strong point. I, I really do think that. And I've spoken to, uh, you know, many, many ex-players who are friends of mine now and, m you know, my, my old colleagues and 
when we get together every now and then, and we still do, you know, we speak about the past and players now and players then and this, that and the other, because that's what football people do. They reminisce, they look, you know, they they always say they can do better, for goodness sakes. We're all geniuses in the group of people that we were with, you know. We could all be the England manager and goodness knows what. Um, said with tongue in cheek, by the way. Uh, but I think you know what I mean is that... Um, there are moments I'm sure that a lot of players have said to me that exactly what you've just said now, uh, that it all went by ever so quickly. Um, because it does, you know, I, I look at my career with, you know, Man City and certainly the first 10 years, you know, with that, that group of people where nothing changed really. As I say, two staff went and two more came in and followed by others who, who all brought, you, you know, new, new flavoured drinks in with them. Um, and, and the team became so strong, for the want of a better way of, uh, of explaining it, and it did. It's just, them 10 years flew by. I mean, I look at it now and they were, you know, it's, it's almost like I'm still dreaming. You know, and, and people say, you're lucky you've had a great career. And I go, yeah, I think you're probably right. But I am lucky, there is no question about that. I didn't realise it at the time, guys, but I do now. And I'm, I'm grateful for that bit of humility, maybe, that I've gained a little bit, if you like, in getting older and actually recognising that I was given um, an opportunity that most people in their lives never get. And I'm, I'm very, very grateful for that. There's no question about that. Time at City was over a decent spell and you, you had different tenures and different ownerships. And I'm not going to ask you to to say anything you can't say, but as the money got bigger, did the pressure grow with it and the expectancy shift? Um, I never really, uh, that was something that never really bothered me, if I'm honest. I don't know how it bothered other people. I can't be, I can't answer that. One thing I've heard said many, many times, and I heard it said when I was there, heard it said in, in the game since now, the bar's been raised. What, well, what bar is that? I mean, let me say this. In my first 10 years at that football club, managers changed regularly, as you well know. You know, I went there when Joe Royal was manager, followed by Kevin Keegan, I think followed by Stuart Pearce. And then I think followed by uh, Sven, Sven Goran Eriksson, then Mark Hughes, then Roberto Mancini, and then Manuel Pellegrini, and now the present manager. That's an awful lot of managers in a short, in a short period of time. And, you know, the simple reality is your job as a member of staff is if people are saying when they come in that the bar's just been raised, then fine. Just accept the fact that the bar's just been raised and raise your own bar. Why accept that somebody else is going to raise it for you? That's part of having a winning mindset to me, always wanting to improve. And I think we're sometimes in, in professional sport and perhaps probably I'll speak more, well, obviously about football because that's what I know. The simple reality is, is that when people don't succeed, maybe part of it is the fact that actually they're happy to, set, to, to settle for what they've got, you know. And the, uh, Gilbert and Oker of the great All Blacks, who works for the Blacks, would turn around and say, complacency is a curse. And it is a curse. It's a toxic disease. And if you accept that what you've got is good enough, you will eventually and pretty quickly go backwards. You might not go backwards yourselves, but other people will start to walk past you. And then they start to run. Now you try catching them up when they're running. And that's an issue. You know, so look how long it's taken Liverpool Football Club.
from the great Liverpool sides that last won the Premier League title, what was then the, the First Division Championship. You know, it, take, it took them an awful long time and a few managers, by the way, to get to a place where they could start to be seen as Premier League champions again. And that's the holy grail for everybody, isn't it, in the Premier League? Premier League champions. So expectations, well, you know, you set your own expectations and the old blacks would turn around to you and say, you don't have dreams, you have, you have really big dreams. Big, big dreams. You might not achieve all of the biggest dream in one year, but because you've set the bar unbelievably high, you will achieve an awful lot of it, potentially. And just because you don't achieve the other bits of it, that's not failure. And besides, if it is failure, then fine. Failure is the best teacher and motivator you'll ever have given to you in your life. You started um, PlayersNet, which is a, a voluntary organisation, which is which is sort of centred around protecting player welfare. Just as kind of a, a, an opening, what prompted you specifically to start that? Um, I guess the answer to that, in simplicity, is that I kept getting phone calls from people. Can you help me with this? Can you help me with that? Genuinely, that's that's you know how it came about. And through the passion of one man, Simon Andrews, who always had a vision that something like this was, was, would be something that he wanted to be involved with. And it was his idea. You know, I'm not going to take any credit for that whatsoever. It was Simon's idea. Um, it was his passion. It was what, you know, as an ex-professional player himself, at Man United, funny enough, and then Wigan Athletic, he wanted to be able to give back to some players things that they might need. And then, of course, parents started, you know, ringing up. Can you help me with this? Can you advise me with this? Can you advise me with that? And so that's how PlayersNet came about. Came about. Don't ask me how we came up with a name. <laughs> I, don't, I honestly, I really don't know. Um, you know, so um, that was that was once again Simon's, Simon's bit, if you like. And so it's evolved from there. And we've been asked so many times now, can we provide... Um, people with, with, with help, you know, with all various manners of um, requests, you know, from one, for example, where uh, a player was signed by an agent who had no right to sign him because he was um, operating in a period of suspension delivered by one of the governing bodies. And if you like, he took a player on and didn't tell, tell the player that he was suspended. Um, and the rest went from there. And they had this, this obviously player had an unbelievably mad parent and quite right as well. Um, and that went an, an awful long way down the line until that particular person was prevented from operating um, within the game. And rightly so. Rightly so. So, you know, all, all manners of things to you know, parents phoning up and saying, you know, my, my boy has a problem with this. How do we handle that? You know, it's a point of conflict for us inside of the club. And, and I guess really what you have to put to this, Dan, and this is a big point, by the way, parents in particular, you know, you can forget parents at your peril. And I mean that genuinely. But the simple fact is they play as big a part in the development of their son's career as a football club does. It may be a more silent part. But, a, but a, a player, a club's player, is somebody's son. And that son spends more time with his family than he does with a football club. So it's quite obvious that they're going to have a point of influence 
But uh, apart from that, they love their son, for goodness sakes. You know, that's that's that, that's a, a love that only a parent can give somebody to their child, if you like. We had Daniel Nardiello on. Uh, obviously, he used to be at, at United. Yes. And he said that right up until... Um, Right up until he was in his his late teenage years, his mum and dad went came to every single match that he played. Yeah, and he and like that sort of support network really helped yeah. him throughout his career and and gave him that sort of basis of of self belief to be able to jump off from. Absolutely, and and but but what equally is the opposite. There's, there's always two sides to a coin, Dan, and the opposite side to that coin, the parents' coin, if you like, is that they themselves have to be educated as to what role their son, that part that they play in their child's development process. And I'm, I'm always on the point of saying son, but for goodness sakes, it's daughters as well now, you know, because, the, the, you know, the ladies' game is really beginning to, uh, to sort of build and develop, and I think that's great. So they play a part in their child's development process. So it's only right that they should equally be educated, for the want of a better way of saying it, by a club as to how they can play that part. You know, many years ago, I'm not going to say which the club is, but I remember going to a game, an under-19s game, at this particular club at their training ground, and it said there was a, there was a sign in the middle of the, of, of the, of the field, and I, I've never forgotten it. And on it, it said, um, to all parents, strictly no admittance beyond this point. And, and the sign was about six foot square, with the you know on a white background with big black letters, it was so bold it was untrue, and it was almost like saying, "Your parents, why don't you just go and stand and wait in your cars in the car park?" And I yeah, I just looked at that and I just thought, "What sort of message are you giving to people when that's the point? When that's the case, you know, a son, a father, a mother will who will go and watch their son or daughter play will always want their child to do better than anybody else." That's natural, for goodness sakes. That's natural. But parents play a big part in the development of their child. So it stands to reason to me is provide them with information that helps them to deliver a better support service. In terms of the player welfare, you said before, Pete, that you were getting contacted quite a lot. Is issues with player welfare within football still a big problem even today? Um, I would answer that by saying that the game has its problems. There's no question about that. There's no question about that. You see, here's the thing, um, Dan. I, I remember attending a, a conference on mental health at a football club just over a year ago now. And um, it had a panel of people at the front and some of the people that stood up and spoke and I'm going to say this, and if they're listening, I know they'll hate me for what I'm saying, but, you know, what What the heck? I'm going to say it anyway. Um, they stood up and spoke, and it was like a party political broadcast on what they do. And everybody knew what they did. And the simple reality is, I contend there are different reasons for mental health issues amongst younger players, as there is for older players. Older players, established professionals, get paid an awful lot of money. OK, that's not their fault, by the way. That's just the marketability of the modern game. End of story. Everybody would try and get paid that amount of money if they could do. So it's not just about the money, you know, but there are issues of, of, of addictions. 
you know, um, drink, um, alcohol, uh, sorry, uh, alcohol, uh, gambling, potentially drugs, um, and anything else that you consider as being an addiction. Younger players sometimes work in environments where a level of expectancy delivered in the most emotional of games can sometimes come across to a very malleable mind as something that they don't want to hear. Because it is an emotional game, by the way. But I'm going to say something that some staff at some clubs who listen to this might go, whoa, I really disagree with that. It's the player's game. It's not yours. It's a job you do. Your job is to educate the players how to become professional players, how to manage pressure, how to make decisions under pressure, how to create a training environment where mistakes that are made aren't punished because the bottom line is when you make mistakes in environments of exceptional pressure, what you're looking for are players who are in the development process, by the way, who, can, who know how to rectify their own mistakes, who can, who can put them right so they don't do it again. That's been a mistake worth making in my book. But when there's ranting and raving in a, in, in a, in a changing room because a game has been lost 1-0 or 2-0 or whatever, who's the anger for? Is it for the coach? Delivered at the players because the players have lost the game and the coach feels angry about that. Isn't it the players that should feel angry about it? It's their game. It's their career. They have to learn how to be winners in a winning environment. And I'm not saying that you don't, you know, sometimes you aren't tough. That tough love isn't a required element at times. Of course it is. But if you're the dog that barks all the time, do you ever hear it after the 10th time of barking? It's just noise. It's just noise in the environment. You want to be able to listen to people who make, an, make a difference, who influence you for whatever reason that might be, who through their point of anger sometimes can be inspirational. That's leadership. And I come back to what I said about 10 or 15 minutes ago, whatever it is now, that you don't just want followers, you want leaders. You want people to become their own leaders in their own right. Even if it's only the smallest part of leadership that they're accepting, they're still accepting that they're becoming leaders and they're developing as leaders. It's this thing about toughness in the game, the people, I hear people saying there's got to be toughness. There's, there's toughness and toughness, Dan, in there, for goodness sakes. Know your players, mate. That's the answer to it. Know your players. Know your changing room. Know who sits in your changing room. There's 18, 19, 20 bodies, by the way. They're all different in some way. Some can take the, uh, the verbality that is dished out to them and some react to that verbality in a way that provides them with internal inspiration. Others, by the way, they shy away from that verbality because they can't handle it. So why dish it out to a player who can't handle it? He might be your best player, by the way. Professional football, it can be quite a regimented environment and people with personalities that perhaps don't fit in with what is required in terms of responding to that type of uh, motivation, for want of a better word. From your experience then, do you, do you think that there is a bit of an issue with the way that the academy system deals with, you know, differentiating different characters almost? 
Um, I'm going to answer that in slightly different ways and certainly not in a diplomatic way. Um, I recall an article that Jamie Carragher wrote. Uh, I think it was... I think it was a, a after a failure at one of the, the World Cup finals, the England side. It might have been under Roy Hodgson. And I, if, I believe, if I'm right in saying the article was on the BBC Sport website, I've still got it somewhere. And I kept it because I, it, it just really interested me. And he'd said, too much, too soon, too early, basically. They're given everything. They're mollycoddled. Um, they get everything done for them. I think there is a semblance of that, if I'm honest with you. I think there is a semblance of that. But I also think there's a semblance at the right at the polar end of that scale, by the way, of, of uh, an environment that exists in some parts of the game um, where the emotionality of the game is used as an excuse, uh, shall we say, for standards that are created. Does that make any sense, Dan, what I'm saying? Um, yeah. I, I can't tolerate that. If I'm going to be honest with you, I can't tolerate that. You know, I, I've had my rants at raves and uh, players in the, in the past. I like to think that I did it knowing the, the people that were in the groups that I was working with at that moment in time. Because I contend, and I say this to people in business, that um, you've got to know your changing room. You've got to know your people. It's a metaphor, basically, for knowing your people. But know your people. They're all different. They all give you different things. And I've already said it to you. And you said it. that was interesting what I said. Is that your best person might be your quietest player? Mm. Are you really going to go to town on him and remove what his edges in the game just because you want to have a rant and a rave at him? Find a different way. Be innovative. Be intelligent about what you're going to say. But be more, more importantly, be intelligent about how you're going to act. You're going to act rather... You know what, Dan, sometimes it's not what you say that's really important. It's what you don't say and how you don't say it that matters most. One question I wanted to actually ask you, Pete, with that was, do you think that the whole, with, with all of this stuff, one thing might, that might be the problem is not so much fixing individual things, but perhaps that the whole way that we're looking at stuff is sort of fundamentally flawed and that's why we're, we're, we're having issues that, that, are, that are coming out of the game in terms of things like, like I know, for, you know, um, family, friends, and 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 that sort of thing. Of you know, where they've had kids who were in, you know, oh, so and so plays for for Liverpool. Oh, how old is he? He's eight. And yeah. He's wearing all the gear, and 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 all of his family know, and all and and everyone's talking about the fact that this kid. I think he's eight. I know. And already, I, I, everyone's planned his whole life out for him. Yeah, he's spot on. You're so you're so you're so right by the way what you've just said is so right and that comes back to the Jamie Carragher comment too much too soon too early he's right you know and, and, and clubs will go and by the way I worked at a club you know where we had players all the way down to five or whatever it might be and they all had this city kit on them this that and the other because they attend Man City's academy and they're, they're a junior academy before they become academy players etc you know I, I look at it now as a person that's been in it I think there is this danger that what you do is remove so much hunger in a person. I mean, let me say to you now, kids don't play in the street anymore, do they? They can't. No. Right? They can't. When I, when I grew up, I'm older than both of you two, so I can turn around and say this, that I grew up playing football in the street 
or on the park football pitch. Most of them even can't go to a park football pitch anymore now because life's different for the want of a better way of saying it. You know, we, we would come home from school, pick a footy up, as, as somebody would say. Somebody would shout, who's got the footy? And, and at one time it was me that had the footy. I've got it. I'll be there in 10 minutes. You'd rush in, you'd get your togs on, you'd go out and play. And, and your mum would shout something like, you're back by eight. Do I make myself clear? And she meant it well. You know, so you'd have to be back by eight, but you'd play footy for all that time. You know, and there was an art, if you like, to, um, to growing up. And you, you didn't go to a professional club until you were something like 14 or something like that. Now we've got them down to five years of age. And, and, and the dropout rate is just massive, and it's going to be. It's going to be massive. And I make no apologies for saying that. It's going to be massive. But I just look at it now, Daniel, and I just think to myself, really? Is that what we're about in this modern game? You know, Mike Calvin's a great friend of mine, you know, the book author and, mm. and, and uh, the producer of No Hunger in Paradise, which some of us on, on Players Net were lucky to be on. And, um, you know, Mike talks about all these things in the game, you know, and, and he now uses a phrase, it's about um, protecting the innocent, you know, and... And sometimes letting players be players and parents become parents again. And sometimes you meet some parents who who live their failed careers, if you like, through, well, through their sons, for the one of a better way of saying it. And pressure is put on them and goodness knows what. And as well as the pressure that they're under at the football clubs, that should be the happiest time of their lives, Daniel, at that football club. Because, you know, when a boy's at a, a professional club, it's because he loves football. Let him love the game. Let him fall so much in love with the game that his passion is so big he can't do without it. You know, that to me is just, uh, that's the character coming through in players, if you like. And you can either build that character or you can strip that character. It's a very fine line, you know, mate. I do think that there is a place where we've reached now where Supposedly, this you know we were we use two words all the way all the time. By the way, sorry to keep digressing a bit, but it's come just come into my head, so I'm going to say we talk about excellence. Well, I don't know what that is at this level, okay. And secondly, we talk about elite players. Now, I've said in conferences before when I've spoken, I've been on panels. In fact, the last time I I actually said it in a in, in a bigger place, Mike Calvin was the um, presenter on stage, and he asked me the question because he knows my answer to this, and that's the reason why he asked me. And I said, there aren't any elite players in youth development. There aren't any elite players. Now, you know what, I, I, can, I can feel my me, me seat shaking with staff all over this, over this country shaking my seat now going, you are talking rubbish. There aren't any elite players. They are players with potential. That's what they've got. They have to learn to become elite players. That's the way in which it is. Look at what happened to George Best when he went to Man U for the first time. He couldn't handle living away from home and he went back home again. And they had to go back there and convince him to come back. Look at that mercurial talent that walked on that grass for that length of time. It's astounding. You know, there's fallibility in all of them. And just because there is potential there, it doesn't make it elite. So I, I don't know what an elite youth player looks like 
And I worked with some pretty good ones over the years. Actually, some really damn good ones over the years. You know, so it's a phrase, Dan, in honesty, mate, it drives me mad. I think that in itself puts pressure on players. Talk a lot in football about mentality and strong yeah. mentality. And I often wonder if a lot of the issues that we have around mental health and stuff in, in, in sport and, and, and I suppose in football, because it's the, the, the sport that we all love, would be, do you think that the sport almost misunderstands mentality and mental health? And that's where a lot of the issues come from. Well, it certainly misunderstands mentality and mental health. I think you're spot on. I think your question is, um, I think it's so apt. I really do. And I think there is a gross misunderstanding of that. There are people that speak about, you know, mental strength. And, and, and obviously people have their own opinions on what that is. I'm not a sports psychologist. I don't want to be one. I've never wanted to be one. But I think I do understand the game reasonably well. And I think that I understand players reasonably well. I think I could understand the game an awful lot better and players an awful lot better. But I actually don't think I'm too bad. But I think that there is a huge difference between mental strength and mentality. There's no question. Mindset is a massive thing. I'm a huge, huge believer in, in the power of mindset in any environment, by the way, Dan, not just football, in any environment. You know, we all have tough times, don't we? You know, um, if you, a professional golfer said to me, asked me a question the other week, and he said to me, Pete, how do I, how do I close out tournaments properly? And I just turned around to him and said, Tom, one shot at a time. And he looked at me and he, he, nobody's ever said that to me before. And I said, well, you can't play the shot that you've not played three shots in advance, can you? You can only play the one where, where the ball's actually lying in front of your feet and in front of your eyes. You can only play that shot at that moment in time. So you've got to play that shot to the very best of your ability. Simple as that. And then when you've played that shot, on the way towards the net to where your ball now lies, you start at some stage to think about what there is to do with that next shot. So it's one shot at a time. You know, so this thing on mindset is just monumentally big. And I don't think, you know, in the game we have psychologists working and uh, I know that some who work at some clubs and what I mean, I'm certainly not going to mention clubs or names of people and goodness knows what. And there's, there's different differing levels of psychology, you know, and, and I honestly think if, if, we, if we worked on this aspect of mindset most of the time, um, the stuff that Carol Dweck at Stanford University in the States, and she's massive on this, and is seen as being a, you know, a real sort of um, power speaker, for the want of a better way of saying it, on this particular subject. And I've read some of her work. She talks about growth mindset and fixed mindset and the differences between, et cetera. Well, you know, even people with the strongest mindsets can, for some stage, for whatever reason it might be, be affected by something that has just gone wrong. And for five minutes in the game, you, you don't see them. They've disappeared. And then all of a sudden they get the mojo back for whatever reason it might be. And part of that reason is that they've got 10 teammates with them who all know who that person is and how to get at him in his head. And so their mindsets affect his mindset. It becomes infectious, Dan. And this thing on mindset is, is just massive, mate. It's, uh, that, I'm, honestly, I'm a real believer in that. Uh, 
it's a subject of mine. I just love talking about it, if I'm honest about about it. Um, you know, I just, I, I don't think I was, um, if you're asking me about my ability to coach at some stage, I, I don't think I was ever the, the, the very best of coaches. But I knew what I was good at. I could get into side players' heads. I was good at and I was good at being able to um, influence them and inspire them. And I know it's half decent at that. You know, so I I coached to my strengths and I made players believe that there were things that they could achieve because they wanted to be in the environment. And that's part that comes back to what we originally spoke about, about creating that environment, creating that culture where people want to be. And part of that wanting to be there is that they know they are safe, Dan. This word welfare is not just about how you treat people when they've got problems. It's about how you treat people before they get problems and creating an environment so that actually the environment is not the reason why, why they get problems. That's why I don't why I think the game has so much more to do than it presently um, than it presently offers. I, I, you know, I'll never change my view on that if I'm honest. Welcome back in. That was Pete Lowe's interview. Um, very, very energetic, a man full of passion, love the game. Um, something we commented on straight away, Dan, just um, how great he was to interview, how easy he was to interview, and clearly his love for, for football and all things football shone through. Sort of a few discussion points I want to want to talk about. And um, one thing that Pete was really, I think, really true to throughout his career was was the, the, the standards he kept and the welfare and the safeguard. And, and we've all played football here at a junior level through to through to teenage level, and we've also all done a little bit of coaching as well. What do you think can improve, um, especially at that grassroots level? What what can we be looking to do? Mm. All of it could improve, couldn't it? Really, I, I can only kind of speak from my experience of it. I gave, I didn't play that much. I I played from probably when I was about six till when I was about nine, um, nine or ten, and. It stopped because basically the the manager, well, I don't think you can call him manager, the person who was <laughs> volunteering to be a manager, um, sent a letter home and said, oh, next season we're moving up to, I think it was like, I don't know if it was, I don't think it was 11 aside, it was a bit bigger. And basically it, it said like, oh, look, we're going to be looking to play the best players. Sometimes your kid won't get on, this and that. And my dad looked at it and went, well, I'm not sending you to stand in the cold every week. That's not happening. And at that time, I went to go play rugby instead. So the the pressures and and and, and the like were completely different. Um, everyone was included. Everyone got a game. It wasn't so much about winning. It was about learning the skills. It was about preparing you to go and play when you were 15, 16, 17, 18, when you were starting to break into to men's teams. And it was the same when I went to play cricket as well. It was it was a completely different atmosphere. There was no pressure on on performing well. There were little bits of 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 it where you know for some players, but my parents were never like that. They were never putting pressure on me. Um, so I think you know I don't know whether it happens all the time, but I, I really do remember a time where I think me and Danny were coaching on one pitch, and there was a game going on behind us, and. Um, I think we'd been out the night before and we were a bit subdued, to say the least. We were just watching our team uh, and behind us, 
I, I could only describe it was just carnage. You know, there was these two teams going at it, but it must have been about 15, 16. And, you know, you've got people fighting on the pitch, dogs getting involved. There's always a dog there. And it was just carnage. And there was so much shouting and so much swearing. And I was thinking, I was looking at the referee and I was, I was thinking, he's about 18 in. He doesn't have to do this. He's getting ten pounds for this. It's, it's just some yeah. some of it's just really poor. But I think to I don't know how to improve that. Other than I mean, we have spoken about the respect campaigns and, and the like, but I just think there's just a a difference in in the competitive nature of it. Yeah, um, no, I, 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 it's I, really it's really tough. I, I I don't having played three different sports. I mean. Cricket was focus on your skills and get yourself better, and then it was it, you were born into that spirit of the game. Do the right things. Let's not win at all cost. Obviously, there were teams and there were players who would do that. And when you get into adult cricket, there are times when it gets a little bit. And this is quite dicey. I'm in a field in Bootle somewhere, and I don't want to be. Here. I really don't want to be. Here. I've got a bat and someone throwing a ball at me. This isn't nice. Um, so, that is the sport, though. Yeah, I know, no, I was going to say, know, it, that, that is kind of a prerequisite of it, having to play cricket. But, but, but it's, it's not it's not nice, like, some you know, the stuff that chat in your ears and stuff like that, some of it can get a little bit tough, but, you know, it's all about the, the codes and the conducts that they have and they've had for years and years. I think when you see it on the telly with football, you know, kids just want to go and imitate that. And I've seen, I've seen, you know, a couple of times where, you know, one of the parents has just taken the kid off because he, he swore in a football game, and you're like, okay, that that's good, but I mean, it's really bad because now you've caused a massive scene and there's a bit of a delay, and I want to get home. Yeah. You know, you know what I mean? Like, it, so I think there is a there must be an element of of them of them moving towards a, a more respectful way of playing football. Whenever I think, because I played rugby in school, and obviously we, you know, because we've been friends with you for a while, we've known about. Um, going and playing cricket and what have you. And I don't know if you think this as well, right? But when I hear about people talk about playing rugby or playing cricket or my experience of doing one of those sports is it's always in somewhere that has a gate. So it belongs to the place where you seem to be going to play. There's a changing room and a clubhouse. And there's it, it's you go, and you go to somebody's pitch or somebody's, yeah. you know. Whereas we're playing football, you turn up sometimes and it's just a field with some posts in it. And in yeah. some ways, that's kind of the simplicity of football, which is why people love it so much because it's so accessible. But equally, there is an element of nobody cares about us. And, and a lot of these facilities are appalling and they don't, they don't, they're not conducive to producing the best skilled people or the most enjoyable environment. It's just a patch of grass with some posts. And a lot of the times you've got a coach on either side and two teams. And you know, as well as I do, if you turn up against the team and they're harder than you are, they'll probably just win because they're harder than you are. And there's not a lot you can do about it. Cause you're like, who do I even complain to here? Because I, I play, I've played in a number. I played in a, in, a, in a number of college matches where we played away in in uh, in the middle of Liverpool or you know wherever it might be, or they came to us, and you'd get like head butted off the ball, and you'd be like, he's just head butted me there to the ref, and he's like, well, I didn't see it, and that's it, you're done, and then you're just like, so people can just assault you on the pitch and nobody does anything about it. And like you're in the middle of nowhere. There's nowhere to complain to. And if you complain too much, then they start to get on you again. And they've got, got all their mates stood on the sidelines, snarling at you, calling you a shit out of the whole game. And, and you think, 
why why did I want to come and do this? This is horrible. This it just doesn't make you want to do it. And we've played in, I mean, Ant and I played in a five-a-side team on a Monday night. Ryan, you came a few times as well. And we and we then played the six sides. We we played a team and they were absolutely vile to play against. They were horrible. We used to play in these cages up at up at the oval. And I went into I challenged this lad and knocked him into the side of the cage, which happens when you're playing five a sides. And Turn around, he went, you do that again, mate, I'll stab you. And I was a bit like, what? And then he was like, no, seriously, I will, mate. And I was a bit just like, all right, that's a bit weird. And then one of the other teams that we played with told us that he'd bought, he brought a blade to a game that they played in and that he got banned for a number of months and then he'd come back. And I complained to the league and we, we moved leagues at that point. And I told the league that was why we moved. And then the league chased us for about three months for subs that we owed on games that we hadn't turned up for when the reason we hadn't turned up is because we told them we'd been threatened and nobody had done anything about it, which is why we'd moved to a different league. So I just think that the, the, a lot of a lot of the problems I, I find is that it's just kind of a free-for-all with football at an amateur level, at a grassroots level. And, and, and a lot of the time it's not about whether you're the best player or whether you're the best team or whether you, you know, you want to you wanna work on enjoying it or whatever it might be. It's just about being the hardest tends to win out a lot of the time. All the best teams I can remember from when I was young, bar one or two, all just had the hardest lads from school in it. Yeah, no, I agree with that. It can be, a, and it probably varies up and down the country depending on, on where you live. I know where we live, it, it's such a hotbed for football that I think people do take it seriously. And as you say, sometimes that boils over to, to unnecessary acts on the pitch or threats or whatever it may be. And when you're going and then maybe going back to school and seeing some of those lads, you can understand why people don't want to challenge it there and then because they don't want it to, to turn into something else. But I think one of the things I'd be quite interested in is if we always talk about these grassroots campaigns and money being spent and how things can be improved. And I think they almost need to create better pathways. So if you're going to go and referee on a Saturday or Sunday league, which takes, I think, a lot of balls to do because it's very, well, it's not well paid at all, is it? And you've essentially just going to take a lot of shit from all angles for, for two hours on your Saturday and Sunday mornings. If you could maybe give proper career pathways and say, well, in fact, if you do this for a couple of years and then you move to West Cheshire or whatever your local county is, you can actually move into doing maybe some step nine, step 10. Then you might get into the conference north. It's not actually too difficult to work your way up in that world. But I don't think anyone, if you're at school, would ever want to be a referee. It's kind of like looked down upon. It's kind of like, oh, you can't play footy, so you be the ref kind of thing. And I think it's an attitude that, that probably needs to change. Um as you touched on as well, I think cricket and rugby is a lot better funded, which is part of the issue. Football relies on a lot of volunteers and a lot of goodwill. And that is probably getting to a point to set now, which is admirable, but it doesn't get it to where it needs to be, which is people playing regularly on decent pitches, in decent facilities, and have, a, have the, the complete infrastructure around it. Um, I wanted to just move on to sort of the academy system as well, which we've touched on a few times. And one of the questions I wanted to ask, and this is partly because of sort of what something Pete Lowe said in his interview, is should we be allowing kids to join academies and represent a, a professional football club at the age of five, six, seven, eight? And at what age should you start sort of teaching the will to win? Do you think... You should just be getting coached football, i.e. trappable or passable, or should you be getting taught how to win? 
well, I think if you teach one thing, you'll learn the other, won't you? I, in, mm. in my head, I think if you teach, if you teach the, you only learn how to win from being able to play football properly. So you have to have all these skills, and that will help you win. So th- there might be, I think when people think, oh, you need to learn how to win, what the, what they mean is like the situational things of learning how to win. So if you one nil up and it's ten minutes to go, well, we'll go play a little bit longer. We'll, We'll make that pitch a bit longer. We'll kick it in the corners. And we'll do this. And we'll do that. Or we'll keep over the ball. Like that situational play. If you're wanting to just start a game and play a game of football, passing it five yards, keep over the ball. You know, moving around will help you win. So it, there's a. I think there's a bit of a difference. I think the academy thing and the winning thing. I think they're two separate issues. I think the academy problem is. I think whether or not they're treated as Liverpool players, Everton players, Man United players, Man City players, whatever it might be, the brand of those football clubs and the reach and the you know the kind of you know the 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 the, the way that people think about those football clubs is so broad and so real and tangible for people. It's impossible for them not to think you know little Johnny who's seven who who goes to training in his Liverpool training kit at you know wherever it might be that they train. He plays at Liverpool then. And, and and I do think that added pressure of what that brings, what that what that what comes with that, I do think is really is isn't isn't healthy. I don't think that's that's good for kids. So you were Gerard or a Rooney or even Max Power Tram, you you will often hear these lads say, I've been at Liverpool or Everton since I was eight. So if they're gonna if the clubs are gonna invest in that player and then he ends up being good enough to become a professional. They're going to want to reap the rewards of that investment, though, aren't they? They are, but it doesn't don't don't have it being paid for by clubs. You end up with like twelve year olds getting the subject of transfers between football clubs. It's it's madness. It's it's completely ridiculous. I think a lot of the problem is so. Uh, Jen, uh, Jeremy Whitson, the 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 young lad from from Man City who, who took his own life recently. There was a lot of talk about was there that support when he came out of Manchester City? You know, was there was there the things in place that young players should have when they fall out of the game, maybe by injury or maybe they're just not good enough or whatever it might be. But I think the problem is, is that we're thinking about it in the wrong ways. I think the, the academy system is fundamentally flawed, and I think we're thinking about it in 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 we're trying to retrofit solutions when the problem is 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 deeper rooted than that i think by the time they get to 16 17 18 the damage is already done the the the, the problem is that imagine that you're a kid and you get you get you're into an academy at five six seven eight and right you spoke about this i think it was in this in in, in pete's interview but it, it, you have spoken about it elsewhere as well about you might the, the academy might only want one player or two players from each team or from a group of teams, but they need twenty players to have a team around them to support them so they can develop. And those twenty players are completely dispensable to them because all they are are you know mannequins to support the kid that they want to get through. So if you're yeah. one of those kids who's been in the academy since you were seven and you spent the last 10 years dedicating yourself to being this one thing, and your entire identity is wrapped up in being a footballer and belonging to that thing of, well, I'm so-and-so the footballer. Everyone, you, well, you said about it before, everyone knows the kid in their school who was in the academy, or everyone knows the kid in their school who was really good at football, and it becomes an enormous part of their identity. And you get to 17, 18, 19, sorry, you're not good enough anymore, we don't want you. See you later. And it doesn't matter how many, how many 
you know, phone calls the club makes to make sure they're okay or anything they put in there to, 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 to the damage is already done. It's, it's too big. It's so much to put on a young person. It's, it's just not healthy. It's, it, it's so damaging for people to put that amount of pressure on them for a number and number of years. And then at the end of it, say you're not good enough. And that's like 99.9% of them are told they're not good enough. And they're just left to go out, out into the world. And you can put all the support in place that you want. And a lot of it's about, oh, have they got any other careers to fall back on? And that is part of it. But another part of it is this just, it's identity. Their whole identity, their whole life, all they've known. They've never known anything other than they're a footballer. And they're told, you are told. And we, and we hear it from ex-footballers. You have to dedicate yourself to this. You have to give it everything. You have to be sacrifice things. I wouldn't have made it to this level if I didn't sacrifice it. So they're being told that, whether it's implicit or not, they're being told you are having to sacrifice things, friendships, you know, whatever it might be, relationships, to make it at this level. And then to not make it, just the enormous blow that must have to people. And they may just think, well, what's the point? Like, who am I if I'm not a footballer? Maybe fundamentally, elite and professional sport is just not conducive to providing a healthy environment. Maybe that's the, the issue. I don't know. Can you have elite sport without also having all this thing that comes off it in terms of the people that don't make it? But may, may, the thing I think is, if that is the case, then what we also what we need to look at better then is, is that how do you reduce that risk? It's all about reducing the risk. And I just don't think there's enough thought put into it. It's about the end game. You know, everyone looks at like a Raheem Sterling or a Marcus Rashford or a, someone who comes out that's a, a success. But there's so many so many cases of people that, that, are, that are damaged by that system and it's just not necessary it's just not necessary at all and i think that i don't know exactly what the solution is but there must be a better way of doing this because this just doesn't feel the most optimum way to treat young people yeah i think it's going to be one that's just developed over over time i don't think it's what i don't think someone's going to come up with a single idea that's going to revolutionize it per se i think it's just about learning from experiences but the difficulty with that is as as you've touched on People get hurt along the way and have been getting hurt for, for decades in the system and how it, how it currently operates. Mm. And I think that's something we need to be aware of, something we've touched on in a lot of episodes. And I think clubs are coming around to that. We have There are examples of where they're putting education first or where they're doing better by the players. But as you've said, Dan, I'm, I'm not completely sure whether it's athletics, whether it's gymnastics, whether it's football, rugby. I don't know if you can have an elite scenario without the being it's like what we talked about before that negative externality what's what's the cost for this transaction of the player being good i suppose maybe the way we need to look at it is is that what we benefit from from having elite sport people what is the underbelly of that like what what are the what are the negative sides of that and i think is it worth all of the negative stuff for the positive stuff that we have I, I don't know, is my honest answer. I just think, you know, there's so many players that have said that they were valuable to the club up until the point that they weren't, and then they didn't care about them anymore. And, you know, I don't know necessarily if that's a football problem or if it's a societal problem, but I do think something needs to change. And I think we're thinking, we're talking about the the solutions in the wrong way. We're talking about them in a back-to-front way. We need to think about, how the whole process so rather than thinking about what do we do when they get to the end point let's think about why how they get to the end point is that is that the optimum way to treat them and I, i'm just not entirely sure if it is 
Brilliant. So that, that was an interesting topic, lads. Um, as always, thanks thanks for joining on the show. Um, Dan, do you just want to let the listeners know where they can find us on the old socials and as well where they can find the podcast itself? Yeah, absolutely. Podcast is on all of your podcast channels. Uh, probably wherever you're listening to this now is probably the best place to find it. Um, but if you could give us a, a rating and a, and a review, preferably on Apple Podcasts if possible, Um I myself am an Android man, so that would mean going over to the dark side. But get on there, hit it a little five-star review, little type in a little review for us, and uh, and that'll pop up higher on the iTunes charts for us and help us to, to grow the podcast and, and reach more listeners. So, but yeah, you want to find us on Twitter, it's at marking underscore man. And don't forget to use the hashtag, where's the talking lads? Spot on, brilliant. We're now going to leave you with Pete Lowe's quickfire. So, Pete, who was your favourite United player of all time? George Best. Really simple. <laughs> Most disappointing player United have signed. Oh, 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 that's right in the ribs, that one, Ryan. Um, I can't say I can, I can pick to one that, but I've just answered my very favourite player of all time, George Best. Can I give it a slightly different answer and say to you, my biggest disappointment in a player of all time, George Best. Ah, interesting. He, ne- he never reached this, the, the, the levels and graced the game for the length of time that those who witnessed what he had should have been able to see for many, many years. That's a sadness to me. Who was the best player that you coached, Pete? Oh, I got asked the other day. I, it's hard to pick one. I can give you three or four. Is that okay, Daniel, yeah, yeah. Michael Johnson, clearly. Kieran Trippier, another one. Stephen Ireland, absolutely loaded with unbelievable tons of natural ability. Tons of it. Um, and there was a player who never really made it in, into our first team, played around the game for a while, called Vladimir Weiss. Oh, yeah, I remember him. Was he Slovakian or Slovenian? Yeah, Slovakian. That boy's feet were so good they could twist your blood. What was it like to coach Joey Barton? I didn't do much work with Joey, if I'm honest with you. Joey was at the club. Uh, when I arrived at the club, Joey was an under, I think he was an under 18, I think. But I, I can say to you now that I had nothing but respect for Joey Barton. Um, obviously, people are always going to point to negativities. And I'm not going to do that because my recollections of Joey are always unbelievably positive. I liked him as a lad. I liked him as a character. Um, I loved what he brought to our environment as an academy. His hard work ethic was the likes of which you wouldn't see in many people, and I've got to be honest in saying that. Tremendous desire to want to, to succeed in the game. That never wilted or waned. It only ever got stronger, actually. Um, so I, I've got nothing but positives for him. I, I loved working with him. When you were a coach, did you ever have to put the nets up? Yes. <laughs> yes. When I first went to Manchester City... We did it every single home games we were at. Yes, is the answer. That's how far that football club has come. But I actually think that's one of the things that gave us the values of people that we actually had. Uh, and the other lad who does the podcast with us who's not here tonight, he, uh, he and I used to coach a, a, a kids football team a few years back. And it was uh, it was a very humbling experience putting the nets up with some of yeah, the it is. pitches we used to play at. Um, and then walking halfway across the field to remember that you had to take them back down again. 
a number of weeks. <laughs> yeah, and particularly when it's raining and it's freezing cold, Dan. Yeah, yeah. We had um, we we. I'm a little bit ashamed to say Ryan was was at the same same day. One of our friends got married a few years ago when we so we went out on the Saturday for his his stag do, and our uh, kids team had a match the next morning, and we tried to get the we we tried about two months before it to see if they'd move our match to to the week after, so that we wouldn't turn <laughs> up half court and. <laughs> the league wouldn't let us move it. The guy who did the fixtures was an, an absolute arse. But he, so he wouldn't move. We basically said to him, look, we're not going to be in any fit state to come and do this. And he, and he was just like, well, that's your problem to sort out. So we, we got in about seven o'clock in the morning, had about an hour's kip, and then went out and did this this match. And I remember we both put the nets up and it was about 10 minutes until all the lads were due to arrive. And we just lay on the grass. It was freezing. We just lay on the grass, just hurting. It was, it was, you know, one of those, one of those moments where you're just like, "What am I doing here? What am I doing on this, on this horrible muddy pitch?" <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we all, we all have those "what if" moments, Dan. There's no question about that, mate. ACDC famously sang "Highway to Hell." Now, a lot of footballers do a lot of travelling. So, Pete, what was your highway to hell? That's a question and a half, is that one, Daniel? Um, <laughs> not because the trip was a bad one. The trip was a great one, actually. But getting there was a tough one. We went to um, somewhere in the... Uh, God, I've forgotten the name of the bloody country now. Oh, Kosovo. We went to Kosovo doing some work for the United Nations. And uh, the trip out there was into Switzerland, get a plane really early hours of the morning, so we got, like one or two hours sleep, nearly overslept. Then had to get on a plane from Kosovo, get out to Kosovo, go into Kosovo um, to what was a really war-torn place, um, stay in what were their, was their best hotel and with no disrespect intended, Daniel, less least said about that one, the better. Um, but, but on the other side of it, the trip was the most eye-opening trip I ever went on. It was fantastic. It taught me a lot, a lot about about life, really, if I'm honest, and kind of solidified some of my thoughts on on welfare. And I won't lie to you and say that it, it really influenced me. To be honest with you, lads, I've got to tell you seriously, I've I've done a lot of interviews in the last uh, two, three years. Goodness knows why, but I have. Um, and this by far is the best one that I've ever done. I've loved it, and I mean that as well. You ask real questions. Um, they're questions that the game sometimes wants to uh, evade asking. It's a bit like the, the questions the BBC chaps asked me that day. They didn't mince, didn't mince around and mince around, and goodness knows what. And I didn't mess around with my answers either. Um, but I think that they're real questions because they're real things that happen in the game. It's not all about sugar and spice and goals being scored in the right, at the right end. Sometimes it's about own goals and how to prevent them. 